It's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? My next guest is a birth mom and an adoptee ally, even an advocate. Let me share with you a synchronicity that I connected in total awe regarding Hannah Andrews, who can be heard on episode 112 from this season 7. Hannah mentioned a birth mom she heard speak in California that sent her on a trajectory of a deep desire to find her birth mom. I hadn't a clue of who she was talking about until, through Simon Ben, the podcast host of Thriving Adoptees, introduced me to her. Laura L. Engel is her name. Laura and I spoke for over two hours a week before recording, and within a short time, I knew she would be someone to uplift adoptees and give us answers to many of our questions. I had no idea that she was the person Hannah was referring to in her story. Laura, through each decade, remembered the son she relinquished to adoption in the 1960s, and his birthday was never forgotten each year. She never wanted to be separated from her firstborn and longed to be reunited with him. In this episode, Laura shares what led to writing her memoir, You'll Forget This Ever Happened. How could she ever forget what happened to her having to leave her newborn in the maternity home and go on with her life? Laura bears her soul about what that period of life as a teenager was like, dealing with not having a choice about relinquishment. I read her book within 48 hours because I couldn't put it down. It is a page-turner, and I felt closer to my birth mother than I had ever felt since reading Ann Fessler's book, The Girls Who Went Away. Allow me to introduce you to someone who is one of the most sensitive and caring birth mothers I've ever met. I know that her words on the page are an example of how hearing from first moms is imperative to any conversation about adoption. She gives us her profound perspective of what it feels like to have to let go of your baby when you absolutely don't want to. Laura, I am so happy to have this conversation with you. First of all, how are you doing? Let's start there. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Good. I'm and, doing... I, and I'm just delighted to be here, too. Yeah, I'm delighted to have you. I'm doing well, too. The weather is beautiful today here. I know it's rainy there. You're on the West Coast, right? Yes, it's yeah. uh, not quite as bad as it has been, but it's it's still pretty cloudy and wet outside Yeah, in Southern California. <laughs> I still think the West Coast is the best coast. I love California. Uh, I do, too. I, I love it. I've lived here, oh gosh, 50, mm-hmm, 50, 56 years, I guess, it's this year. I came here and never, I had no idea what California was like as a young, a young married 
woman had just gotten married and I had had a baby boy and we moved here from my uh, ex-husband's home. He had been in the military. So we moved here to be with his family. And also it was my escape from, from my hometown because of things that I'd gone through for the two years before I did move out here. And I've never regretted it. I love the South. There's many things about it. I, I feel like I've gone home when I go to the South because I was originally from Mississippi. I embraced California and I've never looked back. You know, I, I just love it here. I know you are from Biloxi, Mississippi. Yeah. You would spend a bit of time in Louisiana as a teenager and we'll, we'll definitely get to that. I, I want my listeners to know that you are a birth mom yes. and you are the sixth birth mom to be on my podcast. I, I really thank you for accepting my invitation. One of the things that's so special about all the birth moms that have been guests, as far as I'm concerned, one of the most important things to me is they are adoptee allies. And so I think I speak on behalf of all adoptees. We appreciate any and all allies, and I see you as that. And when we spoke a little while back, I don't know, has it been two weeks? Maybe. I think it was about two weeks ago. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we spoke over two hours, and I, I, I mean, like I got emotional. It was just this really wonderful conversation to get to know you better. And what I'm really glad about is I finished your book. You published, uh, You'll Forget It Ever Happened. You published it last year. Outside of my daily activities, I couldn't put it down. And oh. I, don't, I can't remember the last time I read 322 pages in less than two days. I really can't remember. <laughs> but that's how your book gripped me on so many levels. And like I told you, Ann Fessler's The Girls Who Went Away was probably the most impactful book that I read when I first got connected to the adoption community. And I still love that book, but I love yours more. And and I say that, I say that sincerely for my listeners. When an adoptee's birth mom was sent away or went away, Laura in her book gives us just a whole new way to frame what that experience must have been like for our birth mom. And my birth mom was 16 pregnant and was sent away and gave birth at 17, which is much like your journey, Laura. So Mm -hmm. I really want to talk about the book and and the characters, Miss Felton, Abby, Ella, Pepper, a.k.a. Tina, Mm -hmm. Lizzie, Mm -hmm. Kay, and Deli Jones. Powerful characters you describe in the book. So where do you want to start and how much you want to share? It would be great. Okay. I can start by just saying that I am a birth mother and when I was 17 years old, a high school senior, I found myself pregnant with nowhere to turn. My boyfriend who had been my boyfriend for two, almost two years, had, he was a little bit older than me and he had left me because he had gone to college and he had this idea that he wanted to date other girls. And during the time we were apart, 
he just decided to break up with me and he would come and see me occasionally. And unfortunately he was seeing me for the wrong reasons. And unfortunately I was a silly little girl thinking that he still loved me and found myself pregnant. He left and joined the army and my parents were typical parents in that time. You know, they were good people. They didn't know what to do. They were very upset. They thought the only answer was to force him to marry me. That didn't work out. And his parents were not on the same wavelength. They were like, they wanted their son to join the army and be away from me. Now as a older woman, a grandmother, I look back at that and just am amazed that people who were about to have their first grandchild could, could make their daughter go to an unwed mother's home, have that baby, and leave that baby there. My uh, father talked to his minister, who told him about an unwed mother's home in New Orleans, and the church supported it, and he felt like that was the answer to this thing that I had done, which back in the 1960s, when a girl found herself pregnant and unmarried, it was probably almost one of the worst things that could happen to her. And I know in this day and age, a lot of younger people don't understand that, but it truly was that way. We were made to feel so shameful. And what we had done was close to a crime. And almost all of that landed on the mother. So I ended up in this unwed mother's home in New Orleans where my parents dropped me off, so to speak. And um, my father did go in with me. My mother wouldn't even go in. I lived there for five months. And during that time, my life changed in so many ways. And I became a different person because of that experience. A lot of it was um, because we were told that you know, this is the right thing to do, when in my heart, I never felt like it was the right thing to do. And I don't know if you know, when you have that feeling, that gut feeling that says, I, I shouldn't be doing this, I'm going to regret this the rest of my life type thing. Mm -hmm. And when you're a teenager, you don't really listen to that gut feeling. As you get older and wiser, you realize that feeling was there for a purpose. Leaving my son in New Orleans at that unwed mother's home was probably the most, or it was, the most uh, traumatic thing that's ever happened to me. It was truly the most traumatic thing that ever happened to me. I never forgot that baby, even though I was preached to all the time that you'll forget this ever happened. It never, it never was something you forgot because you don't forget. You don't forget that child grew inside of you that child is part of you. You don't forget giving birth to that child. You don't forget seeing that newborn child. And then to have to leave was, well, it actually, I know, damaged me. I mean, it, it's a thing inside of me. It's invisible. From the outside, people would never know unless I tell them. But on the inside, no matter how great my life was, no matter how beautiful my other children were and how thrilled I was to be their mother and get to raise them, that hurt never completely went away. And in your book, you never forget your son's birthday. No, no. <laughs> every, every holiday, every birthday, 
I had a little ritual every birthday for my son. I had named him Jamie, and we were able to give our, our children a, a name if we wanted, and they called it a crib name. And they had written Jamie on his little birth card and, of course, his weight and everything, and that was in the bassinet. And as you know, because you did read my book, I go back to see him that very last time. And I took the birth card. I put it in my pocket. I can still remember the feel of shoving it in my pocket. I I took that birth card home with me and hid it in a little brown wooden box. I still have that brown wooden box with the birth card in it. I would take it out on his birthday out of my closet. I always had a place in my closet no matter where I lived over all those years. You know, I would, uh, I moved many times into different homes, but I would put that little box in the closet because I was so afraid that someone would, would see it or wonder what it was because I was filled with shame. I was told over and over, don't ever talk about this. My son was a big secret, which was so hard to carry on my own, but I was so afraid that someone would find out that I'd had this baby and what happened. And I don't know why that just felt so shameful to me because I was ashamed of myself that I had not been strong enough to, you know, to keep him somehow, some way. Anyway, long story short, I had this um, birth card and I would take it out and I would just hold it to my heart because that was all I had, Jennifer. I had no photos. I had no, I had nothing. The only proof I had that this had really happened was that little birth card. And no one even talked about it. That, yeah, that was heartbreaking too, to read. Nobody wanted to talk about it. No, there was no therapy. There was no counseling. In the 60s, I don't remember anyone ever saying that they were going to therapy or that, you know, they had a counselor or or anything to help them get through any mental health or uh, traumatic issues, especially where I was from and my family it wasn't spoken about. There was one aunt who had some, some issues. She had like uh, epilepsy as well. And I remember as a young girl, when I asked questions about it, they would just kind of brush it off. And that's just the way she is. And just that's her. And then also, you know, from reading my book that my mother had a lot of issues that I know could have been helped in this day and age with therapy and as well as the right medication, probably. But that wasn't done back then. And so nobody wanted to talk about this. And I learned years later from other birth mothers when I was researching stuff in my book, I would actually write something and then I would think that couldn't have been that way. And I would reach out to this website that I know the alumni of that unwed mother's home have this, this group. And we actually can talk to each other. It's a secret group because once again, it's still a secret. It's still a secret. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking after all these years, my gosh, we're talking almost 60 years and we're still, uh, I'm not, but so many of them still cannot speak it out loud. And I respect that. I understand that. Totally respect it because I know I couldn't speak it out loud at first either for 50 years. I couldn't speak it out loud. But the point is, I was going to tell you that yes, every birthday, that was my salvation. That was my thing. And I would always look for 
a time when I could be alone with that card. That card kept me sane because sometimes I'd even wonder, did I, did this really happen to me? Because nobody would talk about it. And other birth mothers have told me they had the same thing when they went home. Nobody would talk about what had happened to them. Yeah. As if it never happened, right? Yeah. Like you're going to forget about it if you don't talk about it. Well, it's not the way it works. (laughs) Right. And I know there are a lot of adoptees. That's one of their big questions. Did their birth mother think about them on their birthday? And so, yeah, reading that was was very special because I think there are birth mothers that do remember our birthdays. Yeah. I can't imagine anyone being able to forget it. Well, I think they push it push it down. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's true. We did. We did push a lot of things down. Mm-hmm. I remember when I first started writing my book and first speaking out loud my story, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I don't want to sound like a victim, but this happened and that happened and this happened. And then one time a writing coach said to me, but you girls were victims. You were a victim. And I said, oh, my gosh, all these years, I always felt like it was my fault and that I wasn't really a victim. I deserved whatever happened to me. And it was just like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders to say that out loud. I'm carrying all this guilt and shame. Of course, I should feel guilty and ashamed. But at the same time, I shouldn't feel like. It was all because of something I did, a mistake I made. Yeah, it wasn't a crime. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't a crime. And that's what comes up for me when I think of birth moms like you, like my mom, who my birth mom, who was sent away, made to feel ashamed and mm-hmm. like, like really ostracized by family. And I only know bits and pieces of my story as it relates to that. But I know it was not my birth mother's decision to relinquish me. That much I do know. And she would come and hold me, from what I was told, for six months. Wow. Yeah, she'd come to the yeah the I adoption know, I, agency. I yeah. It had to be so hard for her. Yeah, I think it was incredibly difficult. And I think she grieved her whole life about this situation that she was put in. Like you say, she wasn't a choice. If you don't have options, can, you don't make you have you don't have a choice. I can tell you this. She did grieve her whole life. And I know that. Because I, I've met and talked to so many birth mothers. And even the ones who, who would say this was the only way it could be and this is what I decided to do. Because there were ones, of course, that decided themselves. They weren't forced. And those mothers grieved. You, you, never, you never get over it. It was so traumatic. It was so hard. You know, you go through life, and even when good things happen, and, and you adore and love your other children, and there's always that little nagging hole in your heart, wondering about the one that you left. For instance, I had one friend that I walked a lot with and 
this would happen in other conversations too with other people, but I remember one specific one with her and um, this is, you know, many years ago we were walking and she said something about her mother-in-law had another child and none of them had known about it. And she had uh, given the child up for adoption and he came back into their lives when he was an adult and you know, how her husband was dealing with the shock and everything. And then she started into, you know, I cannot understand how any woman, no matter what happens, how could they could leave their child and put a child up for adoption? How can this? And it's on and on. And I remember feeling, oh, my gosh, if she even knew about me and that happened to me, and if she knew, what would she think of me? So it wasn't only that I worried about what other people would think, though. I also worried about my son. What did he think of me? Did he think of me all those years? Did he think, how dare her? I I used to think he would hate me. My husband, I told my husband that once, and he said, why? Because he was the only one I could talk to about the situation. And he said, why would he hate you? And one of the most redeeming things in my life was when I said flat out to my son, our first conversation I was so worried you would hate me. And he said, why would you think that? I would never hate you. You gave me life. And I thought, all these years, I thought he hated me. And and he didn't hate me at all. In fact, he and I adored each other once we reunited. It It was better than my wildest dreams. But I had put so much shame on myself. And I think it's because I hated myself. Right. Yeah. I've heard another birth mom say that was a big concern to her, whether her, the son she relinquished would hated her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm sure that's a relief to know that that wasn't the case. Yeah. It was huge. You know, this whole reunion was huge. And I think that's what enabled me to even have the courage to write the book. Because I wasn't planning on writing a book ever, believe me. I wasn't even able to hardly write about it in my journal, in a private journal. I cannot, you know, in my mind, I could not speak about it. But then once once my son found me, it was this wonderful, it was like a miracle had happened in my life. Here he was in my life. And it was beautiful. It was beautiful. I did such a U-turn in my head that first night, that first conversation, I hung up saying to my husband, I need to tell the boys, I need to tell my other sons, I need to tell the kids, I need to tell, I, I, I'm so glad he's found me. And I realized I didn't care who knew at that point, all the shame and, and everything just went out the window. <laughs> and I thought, I, my son has found me. And that's all I could think. And I was so full of joy. I had to control myself. I was grinning ear to ear and crying at the same time. I was almost manic. (laughs) You know, it was just such a glorious reunion. And I kept worrying, oh, gosh, oh, gosh, I hope nothing happens. I hope I'm going to say the wrong thing, you know. And for the first year, we did walk on eggshells quite a bit. I don't know if he did, but I did. Because, I, you know, I was so happy to have him back in my life. Believe me. It was the most amazing change in my whole feeling to know that he did not hate me and that he felt like 
I had done the only thing I had a choice to do. Mm-hmm. And he said, I live here in the South and I can only imagine what it was like in the sixties and how hard it was for you. And that was so cathartic. And then also my friends who knew me as a successful businesswoman, they, who knew me as a, a mother and a grandmother and a happily married you know, woman with all this good stuff in my life. And when I tell them the story, the first few I told, I this is kind of embarrassing now when I think about it. I would start the story off with, I have something to tell you and I hope you don't think less of me. Because I was still that girl. Right. I was still that that girl who was ashamed of what she had done. And my son had found me and I wanted to tell them that, but I wanted to let them know the reason I didn't tell you any of this, because they would all say the same thing. Oh my gosh, why didn't you tell me you had this burden and that this was in your life? I'm your close friend. And, and my son's the same thing. It was like, mom, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. And here all this time, I'm thinking they're going to think less of me. I mean, that's how ashamed they made us feel. And granted, maybe some people didn't continue to hold on to that shame, but I think the majority of us did. I know when I read that letter to your 17-year-old self, it was Mm -hmm. so moving. Before I pushed record, I asked you, if you wouldn't mind reading it. And so I think this is a perfect time for you to read that letter. Okay. To me, it was a huge turning point in my life. I was taking a class that said, and in the class there was an assignment to write a letter to your younger self when your younger self was going through a traumatic time. Of course, that was the first thing I thought of was that time in my life. So I took out a piece of nice stationery and I wrote this letter to myself. Dear Laura, I know that you are facing one of the worst chapters in your life and I have come back to you from the future to let you know, my dear girl, that this too shall pass. You're a survivor. Hold your head high. You have nothing to be ashamed of. You are a beautiful spirit and a gifted human being with so much to give. Know that your dreams are still possible and that your life ahead will be fulfilling beyond your wildest dreams. Although today you think you are unworthy, soon you will move away from the South. You will move across the country and reinvent yourself. You will become the mother of three more amazing sons and two marvelous extra children through an incredible marriage to the love of your life, your knight in shining armor, your soulmate. Eventually, you will become Grammy to six adored grandchildren. You will be the backbone that a good mother and grandmother is for her family. So many lovely surprises will come your way. And once again, you will love your parents and come to terms with the way this loss of your son happened. You will one day understand the grief and loss that they too endured. Yes, you will always mourn your secret son. Not a day will pass that you do not, but one day you will be able to talk about him 
and write his and your story. And then you will see that, yes, you are still loved. And most importantly, you will learn to love yourself again. Have faith, stay strong, because in the end, you will experience more love than you can even imagine today. You deserve this. I adore you, your older self, Laura. Thank you so much. I think that letter for me reading it, it's, it's, mm. it showed your healing, like the healing that has taken place after having gone through so much, yes. so much trauma and, and heartbreak and heartache. Like that letter shows that you're better, like you're doing a lot better through it. And I, I appreciate you reading it. Thank you. You know, I wrote that letter six months before my son found me. Mm. And I think because I finally forgave myself as much as I could, I think writing that letter was so healing for me because it made me realize I do and did have a great life. That girl never dreamed she would during that time. The young girl I had been, I felt like I was finally giving her a voice by writing about her and what she, her thoughts were and what she lived through and what she couldn't speak out loud. I'm kind of a person who, I'm not kind of, I am a person who believes so much of our life we manifest in, in different ways. And I know that that was the beginning of me really seriously manifesting that everything was okay, what would be would be. It was okay. If I never got to see my son again, it, w- it would be hard. It would be something I always regretted and felt terrible about. But at the same time, I had to go to that point before I opened myself up to what could come to me. It was like I gave it to the universe, my thoughts and how I felt. And it came back to me six months later with him finding me. Mm. I feel like I manifested you. (laughs) And, And getting to, I'm serious, and getting to read your words, this book, because many things resonated with me and had me pause and sit and think like I never thought about that. Like when you talk about uh, at the maternity home having this suggestion to change your name while you're there. And I just picture you saying, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. And I picture my birth mother saying, no, I'm not doing that. I know. That's how shameful they made it. It was like, okay, you have to change your name. And, and it wasn't mandatory, but it was highly suggested. Yeah. And and if you did do it, the, the lady who admitted me, I remember she implied that I was not, I was not a very intelligent girl if I didn't do this. And I thought, I know I'm not a girl that's not intelligent, Just because I'm sitting here in this awful situation, it's not because I I wasn't smart. And it wasn't because I was smart that I didn't want to change my name. Even as that young girl, 17-year-old girl, I remember thinking, maybe if I keep my name, because what they said was, nobody will ever be able to find you. Yeah. If you change your name because everything will be different. You know, you, girls would actually mail their letters, if you can believe this. 
their, I mean, they would put their letters to whoever they wrote to in a box. Administrators there would take the box and have it mailed from different places. They had people that would mail these letters out from other places. And I find that so, it's, it intrigues me, all the trouble they went to get a letter mailed out. I put my name on the letter and I put the address of where I was. And then I also, which was highly frowned upon, I also refused to change my name because I had this fantasy that my son would come looking for me one day. And if he could see my name on the birth certificate, which I thought at that time, I thought that would be like a normal thing. If he could see my name, then he could come looking for me. Up until Katrina, I fantasized that my son would go to my parents' house, actually knock on the door, and in my mind, he would be driving a red car. God knows why. I thought it was a red car. And he would have blonde hair and blue eyes like his father. Well, when my son found me, he found me on the Internet, which who would have ever dreamed of such a thing in 1967? And actually, my parents' home had had been demolished during the uh, Katrina, the Hurricane Katrina. This is what was so amazing about that whole thing that I kept dreaming he was going to find me. He actually did find me was not in a red car and his hair was not blonde. His eyes were not blue. He looked like my side of the family. He had dark hair and dark eyes. He did find me. Mm -hmm. But I just, I think how amazing now when I was that young that I had the wherewithal to stand my ground and say, I wanted to keep my name. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I remember that over all the years, I would think about that because I didn't know the records were sealed for the adoptees. I thought they were only sealed for people like myself, the birth mother could not ever see them. I didn't realize that he would never see my name. Yeah, it's interesting because my birth mom would tell an aunt to not change her last name because that would be the only way that I would be able to find the family. And she Mm -hmm. was right. And that was like in the Mm -hmm. 90s before she passed that she made that clear. Please don't change your Upshaw name. Because she yeah. had married, her name was different, and, and, you know, everybody's name was different. And so, yeah, there's so much, like, that name piece is real important. And I can picture mm-hmm. her thinking, yeah, anything I'm writing down here, if it doesn't say Wanda Upshaw, she won't be able to find me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that yeah. speaks to, like, that kind of forethought is maybe even on a, on a spiritual level, but it speaks to the the deep connection that you have with this with your baby yeah, and wanting to do all that you can within your power to be reunited yes it was so important to me and i found it amazing that i've had so many things happen in this last 7 years i found it amazing when he when he found me and i saw that first photo of him because all those years, I, you know, I only saw him as a newborn. So all those years, I thought he would look a certain way. And he looked, he looked like me. I thought, oh my gosh, it's all these years I would never have even known. When I go back there and look, I'd look at blonde haired men, young men, the age he would be. And in my fantasies, I always visualized him with the 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 red. I have one son who's a red. I have a redhead, a brunette, and a one with almost black hair. And then I also had Ray, who had the color of my hair. 
I'm just amazed that as a young girl, I had that fantasy and it just lived with me all for 50 years. Mm. And I could not, you know, I could not stop it. Even after Katrina, you know, I, I thought, well, the house isn't there, but maybe we could still, you know, find each other. And of course, then I did the DNA and all that. But, oh my gosh, the things that happened along the way and when I look back, I would learn things about myself that were here. I've been so wrong all this time, or I was actually right to do that. You know, that kind of thing. It never occurred to me either. And this is interesting to me. I bought Ann Fessler's book when it was first published. I read about it and I bought it. I'm a big reader. I read all the time. I read everything. And I did not read it. This is, you know, years before our reunion. I did not read it. I put it in a drawer, not a drawer, on a shelf in my bedroom that I have some really special books. So it's tucked away in this kind of cupboard type thing with a bookshelf in it. And I never looked at it. Then after my son found me, I got that book out. Mm. Why I never read it. Why I never read about other birth mothers, I never read, I, I guess it was like you said, the self-preservation thing. I didn't read about, it was hard for me to, to, to read about reunions. It was hard for me to even read other birth mother stories. I didn't look for them on purpose. And then also even watching a movie where there was a um, adoption theme or whatever was very difficult for me. And then once he and I connected. It was just amazing. And speaking of names, I wanted to say his name, his crib name was Jamie, but his parents named him Richard and his nickname was Ray. The, the crazy thing is we were both kind of, like I said, walking on eggshells that first day. I said, I named you Jamie. And here's what he said. I knew right then that you were my birth mother because he had seen a copy of a, of a document that his name had been Jamie, mm. that his mother had named him Jamie. And nobody would have known that because nobody ever talked about that name. That was not the name that, you know, his parents gave him uh, or even ever mentioned. So did he ever get his original birth certificate? I don't think he ever got his original birth certificate because the only documents that he ever showed me were the adjusted one, you know, the amended, yeah, amended one. Yeah. Yes. Wrong word. Amended one. Well, I did see a document that, and I think it, but it didn't look the same as the other one, but it said um, where it said mother, it said unknown. Hmm. So you so never, no, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, so it was never, I never saw anything with my name on it. I only saw Jamie, and that's all he had ever seen. So birth moms never got a copy of the original birth certificate where no, you were. We never, yeah. You know, we got nothing. Mm. I never got any kind of copy. I don't know if it was because it was Mississippi or Louisiana. I know Louisiana had, you know, sealed documents until this last year. Nobody ever gave me anything. I mean, I never even had a copy of when I signed him away. I mean, they had me sign the relinquishment papers and everything. And I never got a copy of that. 
That was, was interesting, most, too, in your book. It's kind of archaic when I think of it. Yeah, when um, you went to sign those papers, your parents weren't even there. Right? No. No, I had turned, here's what had happened. I turned 18 on May 29th, and I gave birth on July 8th. So I had just turned 18. Oh, and I don't know if that consent. was. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So I'm pretty sure that's why they didn't have to wait for my parents to be with me. That still but feels they waited. off, though, doesn't it? I, yeah, yeah so they waited. Off. I never signed anything till after he was born, right. which other girls had signed things before. Mm-hmm. And then when I signed, I was 18. And I don't know if they waited knowing I was going to be 18 after that or what, but nobody ever counseled me on what was being said or what it all meant. And I have had people say, well, you know, you were 18. You didn't know. I didn't. I did. I mean, I knew I was relinquishing him, but I didn't, I didn't know all the, you know, what I didn't know. I had a choice that I could change my mind and actually come back. Well, the thing, yeah, the thing that I think about is this is what your parents set in motion, and these are your parents, and you're obedient to your parents, like you're living under yes. their roof. Like that's what I think about with my birth mom. Um, oh yes, yeah, like she. This is what they said we're going to do, and okay, and you, you know, this is what just, we, yeah, we do. I was so naive, and I, I wasn't alone. Most of us, when we in the '60s, my friends that I knew who were my age, we were nothing like even my own children were at that age. We didn't have available to us the information that is available to 17-year-olds now. We were very ignorant of birth control. I remember one time I was asked by a woman, I was talking to a group about my book and my story, and she said, well, why didn't you and your boyfriend why weren't you smart enough to use birth control? And she was a younger woman. And of course I didn't take it personal at all, but it made me realize that a lot of younger people can't even comprehend. They can't relate. No, no. (laughs) No, no. And and, I mean, I, I didn't want to sound like I was like some slow person that couldn't figure things out, things out. We didn't take sex ed classes. We did not take those classes. They had a class called family hygiene. And all it really was, was teaching you, girls have, you know, menstrual periods, and this is semen, this is from the boy, and this is what the girl has, blah, blah, blah. And that was it. This is how old I am. It was drawings on on a screen, you know, with a projector. So it wasn't like we were really learning anything. We were all embarrassed and giggling at these drawings of the male organ and the female reproductive organs I think about that now I think that was our that was our only that's all we knew yeah nobody asked about birth I mean there was no way well you described that so well in your book yeah like the times what the, the times were about even in the beginning towards the beginning when you talk about the 1960s in Mississippi I mean we're in the civil rights movement and and even describing oh. I mean, it's highly segregated, completely mm-hmm. segregated, I would imagine. Oh, was. And completely. I remember, yeah, I remember asking you when you were sent to Louisiana to the maternity home, were there any black birth moms there, unwed 
mother's there and you said no, but then you tell me about Delhi Jones. Mm. And yeah. and actually that chapter 34 was really one of my favorite chapters. Um oh. and I and I just have to ask you, do you know whatever happened to Delhi? No, I don't. I looked up a lot of information on that maternity home. Anything I could get my hands on, on the internet, of course. And I actually went back there when I was in the process of reading my book for the first time. I hadn't gone back since I had left him. And it was no longer a maternity home, of course. The building's still there, and there's a plaque on the wall saying it was a maternity home from the 1800s. I I did find some information about a couple of the uh, nurses, but they were not Delhi. All I can say is wherever Delhi is, you know, if she's still here on this earth or if she's in heaven, she was a lifesaver to me. And she taught me so much just by being non-judgmental, being kind, and by seeing something in me that I didn't see in myself at that time. I will never forget her as long as I live. I had never been exposed to any black people. My aunt had a maid who would come and iron for us sometimes, not not often. My family wasn't, you know, in that position to have a housekeeper or maid or anything like that. But my aunt's maid was very kind to us kids. And she was the only black person I ever really remember having intimate conversation with or whatever. Well, then when I went to the Unwood Mother's Home, we girls, of course, had a job. We had to work. And that was part of the thing. You know, we did the work around the place. And it was part of our payment, I guess. And it was good for us. I mean, it was good for me to have a job. It was good to have a purpose, you know. And at first, they would start us off in the laundry. And that was, um, it sounds kind of simple, but we had this uh, this one lady who ran the laundry who was very particular about everything and strict. She was nice. But she was my first kind of connection with, you know, a black woman. But I'd never, ever worked closely and sat all night long talking to a black person. So I felt like when I first met her, I worried that she would think I was just some stupid white girl that got herself in trouble. She was not like that at all. She and I, once again, here I felt so bad about myself, I thought she would feel that way about me. She was so kind to me and so non-judgmental, and she taught me so much that I, I grew to love her. I hated leaving her. And then this is the beautiful thing that she did for me. My son was three weeks old when I finally got the courage to beg my brother to drive me over to New Orleans to the Unwed Mother's Home. I love that part when he really doesn't want to, but yeah. he does that. Because <laughs> he is my little brother. <laughs> I did have a driver's license, but I had no way to, I had no car, and I had no way to get over there. And I knew my mother and father would be furious with me if they knew I went back over there. And Grammy would, my grandmother would be too, because none of them wanted me, they wanted me to forget it. Right. I'd never go back there. Plus it's a two-hour drive. Yeah, it was back then. It was before the interstate. That's another thing people can't even comprehend. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> and so um, he took me over. Who's there working? 
deli. Yeah. Of all the people that could have been there, it was a God thing. Yeah. There's so many things in my life that I've thought, I must have a guardian angel. Because she was the one who was there. She let me come in. She let me hold him. And she let me just love on him and hold him and rock him in the rocker. Just like I'd done all those nights when I was a pregnant girl sitting next to her. I, had, I worked nights with her. And I would sit in that rocking chair next to her while we fed the babies and, you know, burped them and loved on them. And she treated each one of those babies with such respect and such love. We would, you know, talk about our lives. And she would tell me about her family and how they were just normal, everyday family, just like mine. And when I would tell her my concerns, like I said, I think my mama's never going to love me again. She was like, oh, honey, you know, she loves you. And she would explain to me, you know, what my mother's side of the story was, what she was probably going through. And it was just, it taught me to, to be a non-judgmental person, I think, more than anything in my life. I never could understand from then on segregation. I couldn't understand why anyone would think that we were different because of the color of our skin. No, we had the same kind of lives. We wanted the same things in life. We loved our families. We loved our children. We were such good friends. I'm that glad you, yeah, I'm so glad you met Deli and that she met you at it spoke volumes to me throughout the book, but especially when you were to see your son for the last time. Yeah. And, and she, a, she did encourage me to, to be okay with it. Mm-hmm. She was wise. She was wise. She knew that this is the way society was. There's just so much I could do. I want to value your time, so I just have a couple more questions. What's been the most important thing you've learned writing and publishing your memoir? Wow. I think the most important thing that I have learned is that I never dreamed when I wrote this book. I thought I was writing it for me. I thought I was just writing it. I didn't know if it would be a book. I just thought, I'm going to write this story. And soon I began to realize I did want to make it into a book. I did want to write a book. And I thought this is going to be cathartic. It's cathartic for me because it was from the beginning when I first started writing it. I had no idea. I was really writing it for all the women that went through that. Because the more I wrote, the more I remembered all the characters who I pushed back, pushed them way down, you know. And they would come bubbling up. And I would remember conversations and getting to know these girls. The more I wrote it, the more I realized I was giving a voice to not just my young self, but to all of them. Then the more I began to talk about the book and what the story was before it was published, I started meeting adoptees who would be in the, uh, you know, in the readings. Uh, we had a few anthology readings that I did, and I was serving as president of the memoir writers for San Diego. And I would would speak to groups and adoptees would always come up to me afterward. I didn't even realize there were that many adopted people in the world. I, I was so naive. 
they would ask me questions. And one of the questions they would ask me every time, inevitably, is it true you thought of your son every day? And I told him, yes. I promise you, I thought of him every day of my life, and I still do. It was so, I don't know, it was so healing to hear their stories. Someone had asked me, my a person who helped me create my website, she said, who do you think your reading audience is going to be? And I said, birth mothers, probably, or people my age. And she said, no, 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 no. I think it's going to be adoptees. And I said, why? And she was a person who never knew who her father was. So she had, because of my telling her my story, she had actually looked for her father and found him. And she said to me, I think this is going to appeal to my generation, people in their 40s and 50s who have been adopted, or maybe even older who have been adopted. And I said, oh, really? She was right on. And I've told her that a hundred times since, that the largest majority of readers have been adoptees. And they have reached out to me. And this has, has given me such, oh, I don't know, fulfillment, I guess, to know that I might say something to an adoptee or write something that could help them to understand what happened in that time. And when I say that, I know there are many birth fathers who this happened to as well. But I also know that a lot of times men were not treated the same way we were treated. The fathers of the children were not treated the way the, the uh, mothers were. So that has given me joy. And the joy that I've gotten from that has been my biggest surprise. And I think that was why I wrote the book. I think there's a reason for everything. And I think that was the reason that this story had to be told. I so enjoyed your book. I just thought it's simply the best because you're very transparent and vulnerable about a time when secrecy and shame was at its all-time high for a lot of different things, but certainly for an unwed mother. Just the idea that, that you took the time to put so many situations, experiences together to depict what was happening in your life. And this, and we're really talking like, I know that part about the maternity home, it's like five months. And so much happened. I know I sat with so much. So I'm just glad you wrote it. It's a very powerful book. And thank you. Yeah, I just, yeah, I just appreciate um, having it in my collection. I'm like, nobody can borrow it. <laughs> nobody can so borrow true. it. Yeah. I oh, love, that means the world to me. Yeah. Thank I, lo- you, I, I really love, love your book. And I'll definitely put it in the show notes so that the listener can know where to get it. I'm sure Amazon, your website too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On my website, you can just click a button and get it from Amazon or, or Book, Barnes and Noble, or any bookstore, any indie bookstore. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's been a it was it was hard writing that book, but you know what? Something propelled me. Something kept me moving. And there were times I think, oh, I can't write this. It was painful. And then I would step away from it. My son actually loved my book. He only read the first two drafts, 
I wrote, <laughs> you can believe this, five drafts. I really wanted it to be just a concise, but also real and authentic story. You know, I didn't want to get away from the theme of the book in that because that was, you know, the made theme. I felt like I had to tighten it, tighten it, tighten it so that it wasn't so it wasn't going to waste anyone's time, I guess, you know, and, and I wanted people to still get the full extent of what really happened. I'm glad I wrote it. I'm glad you I'm wrote glad it, to. too. I really am. And, you know, when we spoke a couple of weeks ago and you shared with me where you are today, it really made me emotional. And I know that you said this book was supposed to come out. I think 2019 or 2020, something like that. It was supposed to have come out sooner than it did. Yeah. And I, um, I don't know if you want to share that part of yeah, your journey. I will. I will because it's healing as well. In 2020, I had uh, sent my book out to publishers and I, I, have, I had a publisher who I had just signed with. Then in March... Actually, you know, two years ago this month, my son took his own life. I lost him twice. It was probably the most crippling shock of my life. Because here, four and a half years, we had been reunited. I knew he loved me. I loved him. Our families had intertwined. My other children had welcomed him with open arms. My husband became a father to him. And I did know he had some different issues. In a lot of ways, he reminded me of my mother, who had had some different, you know, depression issues and stuff. And I would see that in him. And then 2020 came along, and... Here we'd been flying back and forth. You know, he'd come here to California. I'd fly back to Louisiana. And he'd, you know, be here for Christmas and holidays. And I'd be, you know, we'd be there. He'd be here with his kids. It was such a shock. It hurt me so bad. And the first thing I did was contact my publisher. One of the first things I did and said, I can't publish this book. She wanted to know why. And I said, my son took his own life and my book had ended on such a a beautiful time it was almost almost too good to be true ending you know even I wondered about the ending because I ended the story in 20 uh the Christmas of 2017 our first family Christmas together when they flew out here to be with our family for Christmas and I had to end the book somewhere because you know you can't go on for 500 pages (laughs) After the ending of the book, it did continue like that. Each year was better and better and better. And this little part of me, even during that time, would say, oh, boy, it's almost too good to be true. I'm so in love with them, all of them, him, his family, all of them. And he seemed the same way. And I think he truly was. I mean, he he told me many times, you know, how happy he was and how he loved all of us so much and thought the world of our family. And after he took his life, I didn't think I could tell that story because it wasn't true anymore. 
And I sat on the book. I, and my, my publisher was fab, fabulous, Brooke Warner at uh, She Writes Press. She said, don't worry. Take your time. We're just going to keep everything as it is and wait. And whatever you decide is okay. And so I did. I sat with my thoughts and what was going on for about six months. And I thought, I could never do this book. I can never send it out, all that work. And, you know, but it didn't matter to me. The only thing that mattered to me is my son was gone. And life as I had known it was over. And also, I didn't care anymore about anything. I, I went into a slump. And I was crumbled. It's the only way I can explain it. It was like a dark cloud was over me all the time. And I would say to myself, why, you know, was I not enough? You know, I came into his life and then I realized it wasn't about me. It wasn't about me. There were so many other extenuating circumstances. And once I got to that point, I, my publisher had sent me an email with some book covers on it. And she said, you do not have to even open this attachment. I'm just sending these so when and if you're ready ever. They did, before you told me to stop everything, they did create covers for you to look at. So I'm looking through the covers. You know, one day I just said, I'm looking at them. So I'm looking through the covers, and none of them really appealed to me. I was like, okay, no, no. The last cover I looked at had his birth card on it, because they had asked me when they read the book if I still had the birth card, could I send a a high scan copy of it. At the time, I didn't even think about them putting it on the cover. I thought maybe they were going to put it in the book or something, you know. When I saw the cover they had created with his birth card, with the original birth card, I thought, you know what? That's the cover. This is a sign to me. And it was just, it kind of changed everything. He loved the book. He loved the idea of the writing, me writing the book. I had been healed from writing the book in so many ways that something inside of me just said, I'm going to do it. I'm going through with it. And there was just no way I could have even talked about it during that time, you know. But it's been two years. You know, I think we're all amazed at how strong we can be, how much we, we do have to live for and to be happy for. I think once I could get, realize, hey, I'm strong, I can get through this, and I have such support in places that I never dreamed I would have support. And I also have now learned so much about suicide. And I've learned about suicide and adoption and adoptees and suicide. And it's given me a, a complete different concept of how things happen to adoptees and to birth mothers. And and so I think this is all meant to be for some reason. This is a, a plan that just worked out. I'm happy that I am part of that. I know the adoptee community does have a very high suicide rate and so much so that there's um, an Adoptee Remembrance Day that just started a couple of years ago. Oh, really? Because of that, yes. 
It's the 31st of October, like the day before National Adoption Awareness Month, because we do, we want just to kind of stand in the gap for those adoptees who suffer from depression, and the numbers are very high. So yes. I, 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 you know, I'm sorry that that happened, and and I'm glad you shared that for my listeners because these stories, these journeys that we take, search and and hopefully ultimately reunion, they can always take a turn. Um, there, there are no promises, and um, exactly, yeah, they can always take a turn. And I'm glad you published your book. It's a brilliant book. I'm glad Jamie got to read the book and that he liked it. I am too. Yeah, that that warms my heart. I'm so glad he did, and I'm so glad that I got to know him. Yeah, you know, and I, I was one of the lucky ones. I got to know who he was, and hear all his stories, and laugh at his jokes, and give him advice when he needed it. I was the mother that I'd always wanted to be for him for four and a half years. And he got to know you. Yeah. Yeah. And your family. Yes. Yeah. And he, he really, he really had a lot of things, problems going on that he wasn't telling me for a long time. And I think that was so healing, even it, even though the end was not what I would ever have wanted my whole entire life to lose him like that but at the same time there was beauty in our reunion and when it first happened I said to my son I I mean to my husband I said I almost feel like I wish he'd never found me because I was so hurt I was just I was just I, I was crippled by this and my my husband said don't ever say that again because you always worried about him you always wondered where he was. You always prayed that you would see him again, at least see his face and know him. And you you got that. You got to do that. Plus, you got to know his three beautiful children, our new grandchildren, who I'm still <laughs> close. You know, they're yes, still in my life. Yes. And they're still in my life. They're still in my life and they're part of him. Right. And if we had not if we had not reunited, then none of that would have happened. I would yeah. still be wondering where he was, who he was, was he loved? I would still be wondering that. Yeah, and you got thankful. a lot of questions answered, and he did I too. Sure did. Yeah, in, in that yeah, period of yeah. time, and, and he, yeah, he got to know that I loved him. Mm-hmm. That's and really he got big. To hear me, he got to hear me say it over and over. Yeah, and you know, and I got to hear him say it. And I got to hear him call me mom, you know, and I'll never forget when he first asked me, he said, what, what should my grandchildren, what should my kids call you? One of our first conversations, I said, what do you think they should call me? (laughs) All the grandkids call me Grammy. They're supposed (laughs) to call me Grammy. (laughs) And and they did, you know, from the beginning. And it was just beautiful. So I would never have had those four and a half beautiful years. And I wouldn't trade those, wouldn't trade them for anything. Right. Exactly. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you'd like to share as we wrap up? I don't think so. I think that what you're doing is wonderful. And I wish that I had had 
someone like you to listen to when all those years I was thinking I was the only one, even though I knew I wasn't the only one. It's still, when you don't talk about your secrets, you're so alone. Mm -hmm. And then when you finally open up and talk or write, it's like, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. And then when you hear someone else speaking those words, it helps you. And I think you're doing a beautiful job of that with, with what you're doing, Jennifer. You do things that people need to have. We need to hear each other. We need to, we need to connect. That whole adoption triad, I think it's important that we all know how each other feel and what each other has gone through. Well, I think so too, and thank you for that. And, you know, it was Simon Ben that brought us together, so I have to give a shout-out to him, his podcast, Thriving <laughs> Adoptees. Yes, and so I am just thrilled to know you. Your book really helped me to better understand some more questions that I had no answers to um, until until now. So I, yeah, I just appreciate you so much. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you. I am so glad Simon connected us too. From the very beginning of reading Laura's book, I knew that I was going to be catapulted to the 1960s, a time of segregation and the civil rights movement. I was born during such a tumultuous time. When she entered the maternity home, I was immediately feeling the intensity of a pregnant teenager only concerned with her safety from an uncertain and unfamiliar environment. I pictured the chapel, the cafeteria, and outdoor sitting area. I had seen that sort of place where my birth mother stayed before giving birth to me. Laura's words on the page of her book are raw and gripping as they paint a picture of what many birth mothers endured decades ago. I appreciate when first mothers share their story of what life was like for them after relinquishment. It is an ebb and flow in reunion. I've yet to hear otherwise. It can start off beautiful, then take a dive to what feels like a hill here on earth. We hope to manage and live with the heartbreaking changes, especially when we are blindsided by the truth. Laura is still likely processing losing her son a second time. It's tragic when depression takes anyone to a dark place from which they don't return. Often it is during those very heartbreaking times that we take action to learn more about a subject that we don't understand. Thank you, Laura, for having this conversation with me. It was a joy to chat with you before recording each and every time. I feel your support and encouragement for adoptees through the telling of your story. I'll close with a portion of the review I left of your book, You'll Forget This Ever Happened, on Amazon. As an adoptee, my birth mother was sent away to a maternity home in 1964. Five decades later, I still think of what my first mother must have felt during a lonely period in her life. Laura helped me better understand the circumstances before, during, and after my relinquishment and adoption. I only had a general sense of a birth mother's grief 
when family, institutions, and society as a whole were of absolutely no support to them keeping their baby. Through all of the heartbreak Laura has endured in her life, she has turned her pain into purpose by writing this book, and I thank her for that. For readers like me, I find her resilience to be an inspiration to those of us who live through trials and tribulations and learn to manage them. I highly recommend Laura's memoir for her well-developed characters, splendid, detailed descriptions, and brilliant writing style. She had me hooked from the very beginning of her story until the end. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow and or give a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I hope you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it because word of mouth is the best way for me to grow the show. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a donation to keep the show going at patreon.com forward slash land. Your contribution allows me to present a weekly episode free of advertisement and is greatly appreciated to add a valuable resource to the adoption community. Thank you so much for being here.